Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Strappolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours, but ever close to my heart, is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rich. It's a great day to make your bed. Absolutely. And it looks like the networking gods uh, are being kind to us right now. It looks like everything's running smooth. So let's get it started. Ordinarily, we do something called News or Now. We're kind of run down the, some, of the, some of the lesser headlines and determine if they are newsworthy or not. This time, though, there was a lot of stories about regulation. So we're going to do something, a little something called regulation roulette. Yes, that's right. We're going to be running through these regulatory stories, and Tom's going to tell me how likely these situations are to kind of pan out in any kind of meaningful regulation down the road. We're going to get started uh, with New York State Attorney General Letitia James. She, her office announced they're launching a multi-state investigation into Facebook for potential antitrust violations. Attorneys General from Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, and the District of Columbia, which is not a state, will be part of the investigation, looking at if Facebook's actions may have endangered consumer data, reduced the quality of consumers' choices, or increased the price of advertising. Facebook revealed in July that it's facing an antitrust investigation from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission as well. So, Tom, how likely are we to see anything come out of this? Three. Um, Facebook's a good target, but they have deep pockets and can lobby their way out of this. All right, next up here, uh, we have the European Competition Commissioner, Marguerite Vestager. Uh, she announced that in an examination into the Libra cryptocurrency to see if it would harm competition. Vestager uh, sent questions out last month to all 28 members of the Libra Association, asking about conditions for membership, how consumer data was being handled, and how Libra-backed products would be integrated into Facebook platform. Uh, you know, we've seen the Competition Committee kind of lay the hammer down on big tech, so how likely are we to see something meaningful come out in terms of regulation here, Tom? Five, the Europeans don't play around, and especially they have a thing for Facebook. <laughs> and so does uh, our uh, regulation roulette. Uh, uh, next up here, uh, we have attorneys general from 48 states, the territory of Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, which is possibly designated as not a state, announced an antitrust investigation into Google. Texas State Attorney General Ken Paxton made the announcement uh, that uh, excuse me, they made the announcement uh, is taking the next step to the U.S. Supreme Court. The investigation will focus on advertising practices, but other points of inquiry may be included. Other attorneys mentioned search ranking and protecting personal information as other areas of concern. So it sounds pretty wide ranging and they have a willingness to kind of see this all the way through. Attorneys general from California and Alabama are not involved. Those would be the two of the, there are 50 states if you're not aware, 48 states. So those would be included. Uh, so how likely are to see investigation pretty wide ranging, tons of states involved here, uh, going after Google, who seems to suddenly be the new hot target? Two, there's no law that they can prosecute them for. And the one place that they could, California, is staying out of it. Yeah, and they may be pursuing that uh, more on a state. Uh, they, there may be some legislative will to do that as opposed to something uh, a little bit more uh, a judicial remedy for that. So that that may be why they're staying out of this. And Alabama, maybe they just really like Google. I don't know. And finally, 51 tech CEOs, including those from Amazon, AT&T, Dell EMC, IBM, Qualcomm, SAP, Salesforce, the list goes on here, signed and sent an open letter to congressional leaders asking for a federal law on user data privacy to supersede the growing issues of state-issued privacy laws like the California one, the Vermont uh, data broker law that we also have talked about on the show as well. 
arguing that one law governing all user privacy and data protection across the U.S. would simplify product design, compliance, and data management. Uh, they go into it a little bit uh, with this open letter, but you know, Tom, trying to get ahead of a bevy of state-level uh, privacy laws, how likely are we to see tech leading the charge for federal, national privacy laws in the U.S.? This will not happen. This is a one. <laughs> this is a show, and here's the reason why. You know why they want people to to have a national thing? because they can argue and lobby and get what they want in there. California has a really strict law and it's scaring the hell out of them. Now, you know, obviously this is different from GDPR uh, in, in the way that the US is constituted versus the European Union where, you know, GDPR is a European Union law, but is then filtered down to the individual countries for implementation, which is, which we've seen has caused a wide variety of enforcement and practices and, and how that actual process goes down. Uh, a federal privacy law obviously would be much more uniform. Um, I'm interested to see, you know, kind of the, the political ones, who is receptive to this this kind of approach, this kind of tech forward uh, uh, design of this letter and, and to see uh, where that goes from there. Yeah, well, here's hoping, but I'm not hopeful. All right, let's get into our main discussion here, Tom. Uh, first up here, AWS released Amazon Quantum ledger database uh kind of lets you down after the quantum there uh this is a rare blockchain project that's actually about just being a ledger this it provides a managed uh, blockchain service with an immutable cryptographically verifiable ledger for applications that require a central trusted authority it's designed to operate like a standard database so organizations kind of already know their way around and it uses document oriented data modeling to support structured and unstructured data so all of your pictures of sheep for your machine learning training models you can throw in there as well. This joins Amazon's managed blockchain uh, as AWS expands into this, you know, kind of emerging blockchain services market. Is this an actual use for blockchain that might be meaningful to the enterprise, Tom? Your question has two parts. Is this a meaningful use for blockchain? Yes. Is it going to have any real impact on the enterprise? No. <laughs> Nobody cares about blockchain. If people cared about blockchain, well, it'd be like SDN. It'd be everywhere now. And it is, and nobody's using it. Well, so is, but is the key to using these kind of blockchain technologies is to make them not about blockchain, right? This is a ledger that, op, that that's essentially operating like a standard database that just happens to use, you know, this uh, this uh, immutable, uh, cryptographically secure methodology, right? Is that the way that if we're going to see any kind of major blockchain adoption for projects like this, is it? Do you think Amazon has the right idea here, or is is this just for fringe use cases? This is the thing. If you'd have made this press release and not said the B word, people would have been all over it. The minute you say blockchain, people are like, oh, you're chasing VC dollars, which is funny <laughs> when you consider that it's Amazon releasing it. They're not chasing VC dollars. They're chasing people with VC dollars to spend. Um, and and I, I know this sounds cynical, but the problem is, is that at the end of the day, release the technology and stop putting like catchy labels on it and people will use it. So you're saying they should open source this and then sell the support for it? Why not? That's what they do with everything else. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe Amazon will learn some manners. And that's what the Mutually Agreed Norms for Routing Security stands for. It's an initiative that's launched Observatory, a tool designed to provide visibility into how well networks and ISPs follow routing security standards. This tracks routing incidents like PG, uh, BGP leaks by both region and country. Uh, so you can kind of get a wider geographical span or, or nail down to the country. Sadly, there's no state level uh, where we're looking at something like the US yet, although I imagine that wouldn't be too hard for them to implement. 
The information is pulled from third-party sources, as well as Manor's 200 members, which manage over 800 internet exchange points, including tier one network operators, Microsoft and Google. So you know they have some weight behind them here. Uh, more visibility is always better, Tom, but can this provide anything actionable? No. I mean, it's great to have a naughty list so you know to watch out for the people who are yanking prefixes from the, the table or those folks in China who accidentally send the entire routing table through their great firewall for five minutes. Um, this is just telling people things they already know, giving them a centralized place to do that. I mean, we already have great companies like Thousand Eyes and, and other ones that are giving us this data. And, and we kind of already know who the bad actors are, um, just putting it in one central place. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have that single pane of glass, but, you know, when it, this might be really great if there is a is a huge national trend that's over time, like like we see, you know, China or another country that, for whatever reason, we're, we're maybe a little skeptical of their motives, all of a sudden we're seeing all tons of PG, BGP leaks and stuff like that. Um, that, yeah, that being said, unless you can really drill down to some specifics, and this is just the start of that information, it's interesting. I, I think it might be useful, uh, a useful research project, but yeah, how actionable, I, I do have my questions. Yeah. All right, well, uh, it wouldn't be the Gestalt IT rundown without some exploit news, uh, and millions of mail transfer agent XM servers are vulnerable to a root privilege access exploit. Yay! It affects all versions up through 4.92.1, which is all versions of it because the patch is the .2 patch uh, that kind of fixed it. If the XM server is configured to accept incoming TLS connections, an attacker can send a malicious backslash null sequence attached to the ending of an SNI packet and run malicious code with root privileges, which uh, I believe, Tom, in the business is known as bad. Considering that XM runs on 57% of email servers and comes bundled with a ton of Linux distros, this uh, is, is not exactly great. Like I said, a patch is out now, but research by ZDNet found over 5 million servers running vulnerable versions online after already publishing the story. They had published an update to that and after the patch was already in the wild. Uh, the flaw was found in June and it hasn't been exploited in the wild as far as anyone has seen, but the researchers have said now that it's known that this exploit is out there, implementing it is, is trivial. I mean, we're, we're talking about a backslash, you know, essentially just like a, a null field to get this kind of access. Um, it's possible to mitigate the exploit by disabling TLS but this would expose email traffic and clear text, which if that gets intercepted, causes all sorts of compliance issues if you happen to be in Europe. Bad or really flipping bad, Tom? Well, I just like to say that backslash null sequence is my second favorite pug band of all time, so that can't <laughs> be all bad. Um, this is bad. Uh, the reason why, and, and soapbox for just a second, this is the problem when people use open source products for their um, internal you know, use. So everybody uses XM as the MTA for their servers. Great. Well, if there's a hole in XM, even though you don't publicly disclose that you use it, you're vulnerable and now you have to patch your implementation. And so people are going to start asking questions. Well, am I vulnerable? Because I don't know what MTA you're using. So, you know, you have to stay on top of these things. It's like when uh, Heartbleed came out and suddenly there's a huge hole in, in OpenSSL or, op yeah, uh, yes. yeah, OpenSSL. Uh, guess what? I built using OpenSSL and now I have a problem. So, you know, this, this is bad. It's fixable if you're patching. And in the words of my friend Bob Plankers, patch, 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 patch. Um, from Security Field Day 2, because you kind of have to stay on top of these things. Patch all the things all the time. And just for the record, MTA is essentially like passing on emails mm -hmm. from server to server without ac actually looking at them. It's a routing, basically routing for email, yeah. right? 
so, so the MTA does two things. It passes mails between transfer agents, so from server to server, and it also passes the email from the receiver into the mailboxes. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're familiar with Exchange, the MTA runs on the front end and the mailboxes run on the back end. And this has nothing to do with the Metropolitan Transit Authority, correct? No, it doesn't, um, unfortunately, which is the best transit authority. All right. Uh, up next here, Google released an open source version of its differential privacy library, allowing organizations to build apps that can learn from a large data set without being able to distinguish or re-identify any one individual from that data. The Apache license library includes standard statistical functions that would otherwise be hard to build from scratch, includes an additional library for testing, and includes recipes to help devs get started. Will this actually be useful, or is Google just trying to show off some privacy bona fides in a, in, to a skeptical market here, Tom? No, whether or not it's useful or not doesn't really matter. For those of you who like Pacific Rim, remember the big clock that Idris Elba always screamed at whenever the time to the next incursion happens? There's a big clock behind me that's the time until this product gets killed at Google, and it's currently set at like three weeks. Um, here, here's why. So Google's trying to prove that they can pull data from a data set without individualizing people. So what you're basically telling me is Google has to do extra programming to prove that they can't identify you, which means that the default state for their database is that it's easier to pick you out of a crowd. And you're going to expect me that out of the goodness of their own heart, they're going to fuzz that? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're saying this That's is the funny. same stuff that they use in Gmail, you know, for, for a lot of their ad service and stuff like that in there. We've seen Apple certainly make uh, a lot of privacy hay about that as kind of one of their market differentiators that they, they've used the term differential privacy, you know, to kind of say how they're able to do things like uh, learn from Siri voice commands and stuff like that. Although we now know that they just have people listening to it, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but I found it interesting that they, uh, one, were open sourcing it so that fear of a product being killed is somewhat mitigated because it's always going to be, you know, it's always going to be out under this Apache license and it's just, it's kind of out there for people to innovate on. Um, so, I, you know, I, I feel like Google is again facing a lot of skepticism and maybe hoping to say, hey, we have some, we have some good privacy enabling tech that can still allow us to do all this big data stuff that we're known for without being exceptionally creepy. I feel like I need a Google skepticism beanie with the propeller on it so that anytime Google releases a software product, I can just put it on and go, yeah, we're not going to do anything chaotic evil with this at all. Chaotic neutral, for sure. Uh, <laughs> coming up next here, uh, Microsoft published pre-release versions of two new Windows utilities under the revamped Power Toys brand as an open source project on GitHub, speaking of open source. Uh, the first is a Windows key shortcut guide that activates by holding down the Windows key and provides a screen, a full screen overlay with dynamic keyboard shortcuts based on the apps that are open. So, you know, you can, if you have uh, Audacity open, it'll show you all the shortcuts just for that app uh, and any others that you have kind of in the foreground. The second utility is a Windows manager called Fancy Zones, which lets users set up custom zones on screen. Essentially, it's kind of a customizable Windows snap function, which I think is really cool. Uh, Power Toys first came out with Windows 95 did you ever use them back in the day, Tom? And any of this sound interesting to you? Uh, I know you're in the Mac camp, so I, utility may be limited. So I am a fan of Windows 95. I actually went out and bought it the day it was released. I almost accidentally bought it on floppy. That was a mistake. <laughs> but Power Toys, to me, is a huge aspect of what's been missing in Windows for a while. So first of all, I heart Power Toys. Um, the reason why is because Power Toys specifically speak to power users and people who want to do different things in Windows and not wait on these, you know, what are we on now? Quarterly, quarterly release schedules for little features that get buried. 
by mm -hmm. having a channel, because that, that's what this is. Power Toys in and of itself, okay, good idea with just snapping to Windows and stuff like that. But this is now a channel that you can subscribe to to get extra functionality built into Windows. And yes, day to day, my driver is you know iPad and Mac, but there's also a Windows 10 machine over here that I use quite frequently for other things. And it's nice to be able to see that you know now that we've kind of got this nebulous Windows 10 is the future and it'll all be Windows 10 kind of thing, it's nice to know that they're giving us that are actually power users a little bit of functionality built into it. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting, you know, because the original Power Toys was kind of, you know, this freeware release that was previews of things that Microsoft was working on potentially for other Windows releases. And yeah, uh, again, a modern implementation of that. Speaking to power users, I, I really think, yeah, that as, as desktop operating systems themselves kind of increasingly feel more niche in a world where everybody's using smartphones it's a smart idea to really court these power users but keeping them in github as an open source project it's not like you're you're shoving this into you know the windows fall creator ultimate update you know 2019.2.6 or something like that so uh hopefully it can stick around for a little bit yeah next up here tf securities analyst ming chi kuo says his sources indicate apple will release small circular tags that can be attached to bags electronics very similar to how tile tags work the difference here though is that these are going to use ultra wideband which Cole believes is going to be supported with the three new i uh, three new iphones that just came out i didn't hear anything specifically about that uh so this uh, maybe still be in the rumor mill ming chi kuo has a, a pretty sterling record for reporting apple rumors though so that may just be something that they're keeping under their belts for now uh, ultra wideband is considered more accurate than Bluetooth LE, at least from what I was reading uh, in this release here, Tom. But can you provide a little bit of context? What specific advantage using uh, ultra wideband versus Bluetooth low energy would have? Yeah, so you are right. Um, when you think about location services today, they really use two primary functions. They use Wi-Fi and they use Bluetooth low energy or BLE. Um, mm -hmm. Wi-Fi gives you great general idea. So I can tell you within, you know, like, four or five meters where something is. Um, BLE can give you better precision up to a meter. So that's why a lot of people are using BLE. The problem is, is that BLE is super low power compared to Wi-Fi. Um, now you, there's pluses and minuses to that. Ultra wideband sits right in the middle of power consumption. So it uses more than BLE, but not as much as Wi-Fi. It also has more bandwidth available um, BLE uses a couple of megabits per second. Wi-Fi obviously goes way up now. Um, ultra wideband is probably about eight to nine megabits per second, which is not good enough to stream video, but good enough to share files. And it has hyper precise locationing. And we're talking on the order of like two to four centimeters. So oh, wow. I can tell you the difference between looking at you and looking at someone who's just a little bit off. And that's one of the things that I was really interested about because I am a firm believer that all of the infrastructure that's been built into um, this uh, Find My thing um, is not just for phones and not just for Macs. When you look at the cryptographic infrastructure on the back end, you know, phones can already tell you where they're at. This is for finding things that are not phones. Um, and it looks very much like what Tile has built only using ultra wideband. Now, why would you need to know that? Well, one of the things that ultra wideband is really helpful for, um, BLE is great for telling you within about a meter where you are, right? So think of a bubble around you that's about three or four feet wide. Mm. You know what? Inside that bubble, I can easily tell you that something is here, but I don't know if it's here or here. So there's mm. a lot of room to play around with in that bubble. Ultra wideband is really awesome for 3D. 
So if you're trying to build a, a picture of something and you've got, you know, I can tell the difference between something that was when here and here. So that's great for finding stuff and finding stuff that's not a phone. Now, I know that if you look at the releases that people, like if you go to a Mac Rumors or 9to5 Mac, they'll tell you that ultra wideband's in there. And a lot of my Wi-Fi friends have been talking about this as well. They're really fascinated at the idea of building the social network around it because that's kind of how they sold it. Um, ultra wideband is going to basically enable them to create some kind of social network where you can tell where everybody around you has a phone and you can share with them, right? So obviously privacy experts are losing their damn mind right now because, oh my God, I don't want people to know I have an iPhone. Read between the lines, people. So here's the thing. I can almost guarantee you they don't have enough beacons ready to go yet, enough tiles, because everybody's going to want to buy one for their dog, cat, cockatoo, and pet snake so that you'll know where your pets are at all times. And I know this because I've seen that on Twitter. People are like, I'm going to buy five for my dogs right now. It's not ready to go yet for the same reason that the 16-inch MacBook wasn't ready to go yet. This is something that's coming next month. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call it. Uh, Ming-Chi and I are like this. <laughs> like this. Um, you, you all hang out with Mark Gurman, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is coming next month. This is going to be a huge addition because once they release the new MacBook, which I almost guarantee you will have an ultra-wideband chip in it, um, they are going to announce that not only is this a social network, but this is also find my everything so it, you know how they left off the find my iphone find my device it's going to be my find my everything so you pay now oh, i figure it's probably going to be about 79 dollars for a package of two of these things mm -hmm. hopefully they have replaceable batteries i've heard that that might be a thing which is weird for apple when you think about it but um then ultra wideband will allow you to find lost things and as someone who lost my airpods earlier this year and just so happened to get lucky and find them this is a huge deal this is going to make apple um more than just a device company now ironically enough they are a device company because you have to have a device to find these things but this is going to change the way that people look at these things the social network is just a byproduct of that this is about cryptographic infrastructure. Remember how I told you ultra wideband is a little bit faster than Bluetooth low energy, but not quite as fast as Wi-Fi? Yes. Boy, wouldn't it be mm -hmm. awesome if yeah. you could be able to make device device uh, calls, device device uh, text messages air, without using your cell carrier? Airdrops? Yeah. yeah just kind of blow air, that airdrop. Airdrop, mm. airdrop is the build out in the future for them to be able to do an end run around carriers if they have to. And the idea also of being very precise in 3D also maybe could be built into, you know, we're hearing a lot of hay about AR um, kind of coming to mm -hmm. Apple, mm -hmm. you know, being able to have very precise 3D positioning might also be very useful there. Um, and uh, uh, an, an interesting brief on the technology top. So thank you for that. Uh, if people want to find more of your great writing, uh, whether about uh, mobility, networking or otherwise, where can they find it, Tom? Well, I'm in a lot of places. So my primary blog is networkingnerd.net. Um, that's a little more analysis focused. Um, but if you want to read some of my technology pieces and some of the briefings that I get from companies on a regular basis, you can go to gestaltit.com. Just search for Tom Hollingsworth. I've got a lot of information up there and I'm going to be adding more stuff as we go along. Excellent. And you can find me on Gestalt.it as well or on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R Anthropology. That just about does it for the Gestalt.it rundown. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time giving you the IT news of the week. Until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here at Gestalt IT and the studio audience at large, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>